Throughout this podcast, I will be interviewing people across different fields and learning about the difficult discussions that they have within their careers, along with the tools that they use to manage those conversations. The end goal is to deduct common themes and skills among different individuals that can be applied to the complex conversations one has on a daily basis. The most disarming thing you can do is to like be exceedingly kind and and a really good listener, even when it's like extremely hard. My name is Annabelle Walter, and this is Difficult Discussions, a podcast dedicated to finding a method to navigating difficult conversations. Uh, my name is Kara Hunt, and I am a research associate and the proje- project manager for the Pediatric Gene Therapy and Medical Ethics Working Group, which is housed in the NYU um, Grossman School of Medicine's Division of Medical Ethics. So it's a mouthful. Um, but the working group I, I um, manage is called, we, the acronym is called PGTME. So that's how I'll be referring to it. Um, I uh, majored in bio, or I majored in science, technology, and society studies in college. I went to Vassar, um, and so it was called like STS, and I really loved that space of sort of like using your science brain, but also thinking about how science impact people and how it is a human and imperfect um, discipline. I sort of found myself like really interested in genetics and molecular genetics, but I'm not really into being in a lab. I'm very talkative and I like working with people and, and, you know, working through problems. So I, I found that, um, um, you know, through this, through my major, I was able to take some bioethics courses and I got really interested um, in the field of, of ethics, you know, generally. Um, and then after, um, after I graduated, I, I actually wound up teaching like very basic robotics and engineering to little kids in Manhattan and Brooklyn at this place called the Brooklyn Robot Foundry. So I was sort of in the like STEM education world, which was interesting. Um, but I knew I wanted to pursue uh, bioethics. And I think I it was really, it was kind of an unclear, like I was talking about earlier, it's kind of, it wasn't really a clear path to do that. You know, there's not PhD programs in bioethics. There's often PhDs in anthropology or, um, you know, philosophy. And I think people come to bioethics often from those kinds of backgrounds. Um, but anyway, I, there are an increasing number of master's programs in bioethics. And so I, um, while working, I, um, applied and got into NYU's, um, master's in bioethics program, um, which I found to be really great, um, really feel like philosophy heavy, um, which, you know, I do like, and I, I enjoy that aspect of bioethics, but then I, um, you know, after, after the, I graduated, I applied for the role I'm, I have currently, and I was sort of craving something more pragmatic and something that involved, you know, complex moral and ethical questions that actually affected people and applied um, to people in their daily lives. So I'm, I'm happy with, with where I am now and, and yeah, and we'll see where, 
where it takes me. And did you have sort of any interest in bioethics or were you introduced to the concept in, you know, your earlier years, high school, middle school, or was it, you know, high, like high school, I was not. So I think it's really cool that your high school has a bioethics program um, or some curriculum, because I think, you know, and I, I was really, I remember t- I took like an AP bio and I was like mind blown and I loved it. And I was like, I, you know, I just am so in- interested in, in how everything works. And I was like, you know, when you're in, in like high school, I mean, you seem very mature, but I was like, I hate these classes. I just want to pass and go to college. But, um, but I was like really gripped by bio um, and then I, and I really wasn't introduced to ethics as a field or anything like that until college. And I was sort of like, found myself taking philosophy and like history of science or philosophy of science and science classes. And then I took this bioethics seminar with somebody named, um, Greg, uh, oh no, sorry, not Greg, Eric Perens. And he's a scholar at the Hastings center, which is, um, uh, one of the oldest bioethics institutes in the country, I believe. There's sort of a nonpartisan, uh, I guess, research, bioethics research think tank. So in, in upstate New York. Um, and I, he was an amazing teacher. And I just found that there was this kind of like poetry in, in bioethics and this sort of like, um, you know, thinking through these really complex issues I think I think what I like is that they're like there's no like all issues that I think of as within the realm of bioethics are all so different and have really unique dimensions and um I think it when I think about like bioethics I I think that it's like when people because everybody always asks what is it and I'm like, it, I think it's, you know, really the discipline that thinks through like how to be human and what that means to be human and what that means for how we treat each other, what that means for medicine and um, ensuring that people are treated with, with dignity and, and respect and um yeah, I just think it's like a, it sheds a lot of light on like what it means to be human in this really interesting way. And, and it sparks that this, those kinds of questions. Um, so, to, yeah, so I, I didn't come to it until much later, but I, I do think that now I, you know, I've been increasingly interested in actually developing more um, curriculum for high school bioethics curriculum for high schoolers because it seems like crazy to learn about biology and where we're at now without talking about ethical issues. And, you know, you sort of already touched on some, but what type of sort of ethical issues and discussions do you have within your work specifically? Yeah, so in our work, um, we are a multi-stakeholder group, a working group. So, the, the chair of our working group, um, Allison Bateman House, um, and our other co-chair, Laisha Shaw, 
Um, Laisha is actually a doctor. She's an adolescent psychiatrist and Allison um, is a bioethicist. She has a PhD and she teaches also in the, in, at NYU. Um, but we basically bring together um, ethicists, clinicians, industry representatives, patients, and patient advocates um, to study collaboratively and to think about ethical issues involved in pediatric gene therapy trials. So it's a really specific niche um, topic, right? And so, you know, the, the sort of whole scope of human subjects research is within the purview of bioethics, right? That's a, that's like the field sort of evolved to, um, or was born, you know, predominantly out of this, like the horrors of World War II and, you know, a lot of the main, uh, you know, the Belmont report and the sort of foundational bioethical texts came out of out of these like egregious harms um perpetrated by by nazi um you know so-called doctors and not that there wasn't ethics before um world war ii but but it really that's what really shaped it so i'm i'm being long-winded but but that's to say that you know we we're interested in in how to conduct research ethically for this specific treatment, um, which is called gene therapy. Um, and we're specifically concerned with pediatric patients. Um, and because they're pediatric patients, they're, they're specific and unique sets of concerns. Um, so most of these, the gene therapies that we, that are in clinical trials currently are aimed at treating rare and ultra rare diseases. Um, so these are small groups of um, really small populations of, of people with these rare diseases. And what our group does is we sort of think through um, some of the ethical issues that families face and that clinicians ought to think about and that industry, you know, drug sponsors, the folks actually developing these gene therapy treatments, we think through the issues um, and sort of flag issues that they ought to think about or that folks ought to pay attention to. Um, so for instance, um, right now we're doing a study about really about the lived experience of families considering or participating in these gene therapy trials um, because, you know, participation entails travel burdens, you know, other logistical hurdles. You have to, if you're a parent with other children, you might have to secure childcare while you go to, while you travel to the trial site, you might have to take time off work. Um, there, you know, the, there are safety concerns still with gene therapies, right? There have only been five FDA approved gene therapies. So they're still very much in the research phase. Um, so we're thinking about, you know, those sorts of issues right now, of like not just cost because they're exorbitantly expensive, but what are the other burdens of research participation for these, these families with pediatric um, 
with kids who are who are the participants um what are the you know what are they dealing with and what are the other benefits right why why might they participate in research um you know there could be benefits like um you know they they there's meaning to be made um from participating and and feeling like they're contributing to um to progress towards a treatment they want to improve the lives you know they feel like they're improving the lives of future um, children with a rare disease um so there's as you can imagine there's many issues and complications and that we talk about um one of our one of the a paper that we published um actually before i was in this role so i'm not i did not author it but um we sort of were talking about the the paper discusses what what drug sponsors should do um in terms of developing a policy for siblings so if a rare, if a if one kid in a family has a rare disease um and they get to enroll in a trial um but then the family discuss, like has a has another child um because of inclusion or ex exclusion criteria it could be that only one child meets the eligibility criteria for the said trial and that can obviously be extremely stressful for the parents um, and made perhaps later on for the child, right? So that's one of the sort of things we're thinking through. And the paper essentially argues that, you know, trial sponsors don't, they're not obligated to make exceptions for siblings, but they are morally obligated to develop a policy at least. So that at the start, you know, a family knows if I enroll, if we enroll our child into this trial, here's their policy about siblings. Um, so that it's not, you know, done on a sort of ad hoc basis, but it's a clearly established policy up front. And I think, you know, that is, I think that's a good example of how um, the, the kinds of interesting like solutions to, to problems or the the way that we try to help other stakeholders involved. We're not saying you have to do this or this, but we're saying this is a really thorny issue. Here are some of the perspectives from families, from patients. Um, and therefore, you know, it, it, we would advise that you develop this policy. So if, you know, if you're thinking about like, what are some of the best tools to deal with tricky ethical situations? I think, um, you know, I think it is always wise to be 10 steps ahead and think through some of these issues and to develop policies that are informed by a variety of stakeholders, right? So that you get, you at least have multiple people weigh in um, and hear multiple perspectives. Um, and I think that's the most, I often think that's like the best, you know, we can do sometimes is like, let's, everybody has a voice. We, you know, we reason with each other um, and make an argument or issue policy guidance. And, you know, a company may or may not take that into consideration, but, um, but I think, you know, that that is that is kind of some of the work that we do, and we hope that it 
it does impact, you know, sponsors and families later on. And how does your identity sort of shape the conversations you have and maybe the perspectives you have within those conversations? I, I don't have um, people close to me or in my family who have rare and ultra rare diseases. I sort of, you know, have learned a lot about um, the, you know, rare diseases generally and specific rare disease communities um, specifically. But so I think, you know, my identity is somebody who is extremely privileged. I am very healthy. I am upper middle class. Um, I have a good education. And, you know, I, I do think it's important to like, to check myself for those reasons or to really examine like things that I might be assuming about, um, you know, about what it, what, you know, what healthcare looks like or how easy it is to, to get in touch with a doctor or, you know, thing, I guess things that, you know, privilege is like the things that you don't even realize, right. You don't even um, realize the, that, people are really struggling with things that are very easy for you. And so I think it's always important um, for me and for everyone else in our working group to, to check ourselves in that regard. And I think also as a, you know, a white person in a predominantly white working group, you know, it's not, unfortunately, our, our working group has about 22 people. And I would, I think there are only like three or four people of color and so, um, you know, I think that that like puts us at a disadvantage because we don't, you know, hear from that, from people, from the perspective of people of color as much and enough as we should, you know, and so it might, the, the events we put out on education and things we write might not fully represent um, the populations that we're trying to reach. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think those are things that um, I'm aware of. And I think bioethics, the field in general, as like, it is also doing a lot of, I think it's hard to say, like, it's hard to measure these things, but I think, you know, in the past few years, like a lot of institutions is taking a long, hard look at itself and, you know, examining the racial and ethnic makeup of those at the top and thinking, I think there are more scholars like thinking through, you know, who, whose work are we looking at? Who are we citing? Who are we not citing? Um, why, you know, are we studying health inequities for our own um, resumes or are you, you, you know, are we actually doing that for the right reasons? And I think it's, you know, these are really tough questions. They make people uncomfortable, but I think that process is is critical for the field and and for the public and um, you know not just for bioethics but but yeah I do see um, uh, I, I do see like kind of a shift and you know it's always a, a work in progress to like examine identity and how your own identity shapes how you think and how you interact in the world and I guess you know if I were to like, advise anybody it's to like 
continue that and have that be an ongoing discussion and something that's not like, okay, now we need to think about diversity, but, but rather like, okay, how can we like continually examine ourselves and our group and our shortcomings and our assumptions and biases and how can we address those in a way that's not like checking a box um, and how can we um, involve underrepresented communities and individuals in the work that we do. How do you ensure that you're sort of keeping an open mind that you and your working group are remaining empathetic um, with those who you may be sort of writing or discussing that you may not have that same experience as them? You know, we bring in a lot of guest speakers. So though our group itself is comprised of um, various stakeholders, we continue like every month during our meetings to bring in folks from various disciplines and, and you know, try to continue educating ourselves. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we're pretty good at having, um, you know, respectful debate um, when that happens. Um, but, but it's hard, you know, kids are bad at it. Adults are bad at it. I think we're always like trying to improve and check ourselves. And I have to say, you know, my boss, um, Allison Bateman House is a really excellent um, facilitator and moderator. So she, if, you know, if, if people are talking too much or taking up too much space, or if they're getting like a little bit too aggressive, maybe she, in a way that's not like accusatory, she will, you know, lay some ground rules and set some boundaries and, and kind of like take charge. And I think it's really important to have like a solid facilitator like that. And it's a hard skill to do that. Um, Cause you know, emotions can get um, can run high. How do you personally um, sort of keep a, try and keep a discussion sort of productive and polite? And what do you do on mm -hmm. sort of an individual level to ensure that things aren't getting out of hand in a sense? You know, I'm fairly early in my career. And so I think I have maybe a harder time doing that and being the one who's like, hey, let's all take a deep breath. Let's check in let's like set, set up some rules. But I think, um, like I said, I think my boss does a really good job at, at that. And this, I'm just going to give you an example of like one time when um, we have a member who's from industry and then we have a parent who's also has started a, a rare disease, a foundation to raise money for, um, for rare children with rare diseases to, to fund research, et cetera. And I think he was, you know, saying something about pharma companies and, and um, that was slightly negative. I don't really remember what it was, but, you know, I think that people who, I think pharma gets a really bad rap. A lot of that is for a good reason. If we look at history um, and, you know, I think I empathize with that sentiment and opinion. However, there are pe really amazing people who work in pharma, um, who are patient liaisons and patient advocates within pharmaceutical companies. 
and they care deeply and are passionate about um, advancing treatments for rare diseases. And, you know, I, I can also really empathize with, with maybe feeling if you are, if you work in pharma with maybe feeling attacked and, you know, feeling like people assume that you have negative intentions or that you yourself are profit driven and profit motivated. And I think, you know, I think being able to empathize with, with those various perspectives is, is really valuable. I also think that like, you know, laying some ground rules is, is really critical. Um, and so, you know, one of those is like, let's not assume, you know, anything about people's intentions, like try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, think when that situation got heated, we spoke to each individual separately, myself and, uh, our group's chair. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's just emotions can, can, run high and it's, it's really understandable. And the most you can empathize, the more you can empathize, the better and the more, um, you know, prepared you can be for like, okay, when there's a disagreement um, and it gets heated, here's what we do, you know, and it could be like, we're going to table this discussion and change the subject. And that, I think that's also valuable. And then we'll return to it later and like in a more calmer diplomatic way, you know, it's the same with, I like taught kids. We do that with kids too. Um, but I think also, um, yeah, I guess I think it's important to not shy away from difficult conversations and topics, um, in, you know, in, in fear that you might hurt somebody's feelings. And so therefore it, it is just to assume the best intentions is a good policy and, there's a great piece um, by Eric Perens um, on um, it's called on binocularity, I think. And it's really about being able to like see both sides of a situation and those don't have to, you know, those don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like there can really, there are multiple sides to every issue and, yeah, so being able to empathize with sort of all perspectives and going in with the intention to learn and not to like, mm-hmm. self-right. Yeah, and I think, you know, being being really humble and and knowing when um when you you don't know anything about something is okay, you know. Um and this is like this is I think just being not being defensive is really helpful for personal relationships too, <laughs> romantic ones. But, and it's really hard, you know, when somebody thinks, when you think somebody is saying that is assuming the wrong thing about you or thinks you're saying this and you're really not, it's really frustrating and really hard. Um, and, you know, I think it's just a, it's a muscle that you, you work throughout your life, honestly. <laughs> And what sort of values or frameworks guide your personal discussions um, in and out of your work? But yeah, I, I guess my framework is that like, you know, we're so, me- life is really messy. Like, and these issues are really thorny and like 
if you think about them, like if you just zoom way out, you're like, okay, we're just human animals and we are trying to interact in society and we're trying to figure out how to study each other in this way that is like ethical. And what does that mean? And like it, to thinking about the new technology, medical technologies we have, it's all like new for us. So we're like, you know, we're, ma- we're not making it up as we go, but we also kind of are. Um, and I think just to have some, like, there's just dignity in that and to give ourselves like grace in that, um, is important. And I, I think another thing in, in the back of my mind that I, I do try to think about is like, you know, which I kind of touched on already, but, um, you know, it's like, the gene therapy treatments we're thinking of, we're, we're studying now are, um, you know, largely being studied at, at centers that have a lot of money and hospitals that are really well known with the best doctors and families that are able to, um, generate to, you know, get, get enough money to get approved gene therapies, like, you know, exist in a, in a different world than do families who have no money, no support, not like way less access to healthcare. And so I think it's always important in any, if like, especially in an ethical field to think about from the get-go, how to, um, to include the needs of those who are, who don't have means, who don't have funds, who aren't privileged, Um, And to think about that from the beginning rather than at the end, right? Rather than being like, okay, now we have this gene therapy. um, It's been approved, but the pool of like study participants is fairly heterogeneous or sorry, homogenous, you know, it may be all white. So instead of, so, you know, it's possible that we don't know if like how that treatment affects different populations in different ways. Right. And it would have been more beneficial to like really strive for a more diverse study population. Um, And that might've taken longer. It might've involved more resources, but um, at the end, you're going to have an approved treatment that has been proven to be safe and effective for a wider um, population and a more diverse population. Um, and so I think, you know, those cons- kinds of considerations need to come at the very beginning and those voices need to be heard more. Um, and I, yeah, I think that is an ongoing um, thing and, and debate in bioethics and is still really problematic. And what do you think are the most important things for an individual to keep in mind? Um, you know, whether it's an ethical issue or just something happening in their everyday lives when it comes to um, facilitating a conversation or being mm-hmm. sort of confronted on the receiving end. Um, I like I said, I think to keep to keep things calm and try to you know balance like de-escalating conversations if they can get really heated and making sure that, you know, I think a good tool, just a communication tool is to, to really make sure you understand what somebody's saying. So to, 
ask a lot of clarifying questions so that you're like, okay, am I correct in, in, in that you're saying this, right? Or can you please like correct me if, if I'm wrong and just to really hone in on, on what they're trying to say so that you're not, you know, responding based off an assumption, an incorrect assumption. Um, but I, I also think that like, because these are messy issues, you know, if you're a parent and you have a child with, um, you know, muscular dystrophy and you, there are, you know, not really any alternative treatments and you want to get your child into a study, um, you're going to be emotional. You're going to be advocate aggressively for your child and you're going to be, you know, I'm talking about this very specific niche that I work in, but, but I think it's, it's like really to, it's important to understand and empathize with, with those fierce, you know, parental desires and values and to acknowledge and understand that, you know, why, why they're there and why, you know, why people are emotional and to not downplay that and to really give that, that space, you know? Um, so I hope that helps, but (laughs) definitely. Um, and when you're having a discussion with someone that is not productive, how do you know when to step back and say, I have to respect and uphold my own values just as much as I do yours? You know, the truth is I haven't really run into a situation or a conversation in my work where I'm like, this goes against my values. Um, but I think like, let's say I'm talking to somebody about abortion who has a different opinion than I do. Um, I think like the most, you know, it's just a fact that, that nobody likes to be yelled at. Um, and I'm, I'm like, you know, one to yell over the kid, the dinner table about politics. And I, I get really amped up, but I think like the most disarming thing you can do is to like be exceedingly kind and, and a really good listener, even when it's like extremely hard, you know, because if there's any possibility for somebody to, you know, if I'd really disagree with somebody and I start yelling at them and telling them that they're wrong or bad or misinformed or stupid, like, I wouldn't listen to that. You know, I wouldn't listen to what I had to say. Um, And I think like really over, over empathizing, even if it's performative of like, okay, I see that you're, you know, have a really, you're really dedicated to your faith and your faith dictate, you know, says this. And I really understand that. I think it's, that's a really disarming thing to, for somebody to be like, I hear you. And I, I can, okay, I can get where you're coming from, right? You're modeling behavior that you want them to do. It's like, I want you to hear my opinions and why this doesn't line up with my values. How can I do that? I can like really show you what that looks like. And if someone else doesn't do that, then, you know, they're lost. But at least I think that's the most valiant effort or the way you can, you know, strive for that. <laughs> um, yeah to kill them with kindness a little bit kill them with kindness yeah and it's like you know even with um the sort of vaccine covid vaccine debate 
you know, I think in my, even in my department and my division, like, obviously everybody is extremely pro vaccine, but I think at some point, like the rhetoric, um, just got a little bit personally for me, I think a little bit too like elitist feeling. And it was very like shame on, on these people. And like, they're not really believing science and like, you know, they're bad. And I, while I definitely believe in vaccines, I was like, this is just, it's a little bit, you know, for me, I'm like, that's not going to work. If your ultimate, think about your ultimate goal, right? Is your ultimate goal for more people to be vaccinated? Like, you know, it seems so urgent and so dire, which it is, but like, you know what, now, now we've created this crazy political divide instead of being like, Hey, well, we empathize with the fact that information about vaccines was kind of bungled and confusing. And there was like a lot of mixed messages and, instead of understanding where people might be coming from with like mistrust and with caution and trying to answer questions, which I think, you know, there've been a lot of people and especially in my institution who have done a really good job of that, of just being like, Hey, I'm open to answer any questions you have and being really not just non-judgmental that, you know, has been huge. But yeah, I think for me personally, I think like, there is this, a lot of this sort of rhetoric around like directed towards like anti-vaxxers and directed towards people who are skeptical of science and skeptical of medicine and skeptical of pharmaceutical companies. I'm like, I get that, you know, and the more you can get that and like, you know, let people know that you can, you feel where they're coming from and like, the more they're going to be willing to listen to why they might be, they might come around to, to changing their opinion. So the more they're going to be willing to like really hear you out, if you hear them out, I think, yeah, I think, you know, with, I used to, like I said, work with kids and, and I think one of the, the tools that I learned from working with kids, like little toddlers is like, you know, they're getting extremely frustrated. They're throwing a tantrum and you have to name their emotions for them. So you're like, oh, I see you're getting really upset. Are you upset? Are you angry? That must be, that must make you feel really angry when you were playing with this toy and this person took your toy. That would make me angry too. Here's what we can do to, you know, (laughs) to help the situation. And I honestly think it's the same for adults. You have to be like, oh yeah, you're really scared because you don't know what's in the vaccine that's totally reasonable and like doesn't that just feel better than being like you don't know anything you're stupid you don't believe in science so i'm i'm from california and so i'm like you know indoctrinated in sort of pseudo hippie culture and so i'm like okay i all these are actually valuable communication <laughs> tools and i'm i have like a soft spot but that's because i think it's effective Definitely. And sort of on that note, how do you find yourself applying the work you do in medicinal ethics with your um, working group to your everyday life, even outside Mm. of your work? Yeah, I think generally, you know, the things I've been talking about in terms of like really hearing where people are coming from and understanding the complexity of 
living as a human today, like, and just, just really getting that and, and being understanding of that is, is, is something that I, you know, definitely deal with in my day to day and it has been helpful. Um, and I also just think the model of our working group is really productive and amazing. You know, I think before this job, I worked at a design museum in New York, um, called Cooper Hewitt. And, um, and I would teach, you know, design and design thinking workshops, um, to all K through K through 12 age students. And, um, you know, the first step in design when you're designing anything is you want to like, think about who are your users, right? Who are the users? Like I'm designing this coffee cup. So maybe I'm designing this coffee cup for, like a parent on the go who's like holding a baby and a stroller and a bag like this probably isn't the best design they might need something better with a handle right um and so like thinking about the user who's going to use the gene therapy products that are um in development um you know the model of bringing in all the potential like users and stakeholders, people who, who are involved in the development. I think that's a really good model of like, okay, we're all going to be affected and impacted by the gene therapy, right. In different ways. So let's all get together and think through these issues together. And I just think that's like a good model for, for problem solving generally. You know, if you can think of um, you, like and there's a town hall where because there's plans to to build a new community center and it's like, OK, that would be crazy to build the town hall without bringing in people who live in the town, people with kids, people with disabilities who live in the town, um, political figure, you know, the mayor and you know like bring in everybody together and it's going to be messy and like difficult but then if everybody can weigh in they will at least feel like their voice was heard hopefully <laughs> um but yeah i just i like that model i think it it makes sense to me so before you you know go into work or you hop hop on a call um what's the what do you tell yourself if you know you're going into a conversation that might be difficult Here's what I tell myself. It's okay to take time to think about answers. And it's way better to say, like, I don't know, I'm not sure, than to make something up because you feel like you need to answer or you feel like, you know, maybe I, I it'll sound like I'm unprepared or not smart, but you do sound way smarter when, and you feel way better. And it's a way better move to be like, I don't know you know, I don't know the answer and I don't know the best approach. Let's think through it. Or let me have some time to, to think through this, um, and to ask people who might be helpful.